first is Luke, and the second is Acts. It was written by Luke, who was a traveling companion of the Apostle Paul. He was a physician. And he set out to tell of all that Jesus began to do in his gospel. And the book of Acts is a sequel to that. So it is about what Jesus continued to do after his ascension in and through the Holy Spirit. And in volume two, it tells the story of how the gospel moves out from Jerusalem and Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. It's an amazing book. If you haven't read it, I commend it to you to read this week. Chapters two through eight talk about how God's people are in fact his temple. And they are to be his presence in the world to go spread his glory to all the earth. And then beginning in chapter eight through 12, the gospel goes international. It goes to the ends of the earth in its first missionary journey. And the second international mission trip goes back to Asia Minor and then to Greece. In chapters uh, 16 through 18, you can read about this together. The gospel in chapter 16 picks up when Paul and Silas come to Derbe and to Lystra. At Lystra, they pick up a young man whose name you may know named Timothy. And then they go from Lystra and they go to uh, Phrygia and Galatia and Troas and uh, Samothrace and the Neapolis and Philippi. And in Philippi, they meet a, a wealthy woman, a dealer in purple cloth named Lydia. And she is so impacted by the gospel that she welcomes them into their home. Like, please stay. Please stay. And so she practically begs them to stay in her house. And so Paul and Silas agree to adjust their plans and, and stay with her. And one day when they're in Philippi, staying with this wonderful hostess and her family named Lydia, they go to the place of prayer. They're walking to the place of prayer. And they notice that there is a, a, a young girl there who is prophesying in the name of Apollo. She sa it says in the text that she had a spirit of divination. And in Greek, the root word for divination is the same root word we get the word python. If you know your Greek um, mythology, you know that Apollos conquered this violent serpent. And snakes, for the Greeks, were always a reminder and evidence of Apollos' uh, uh, power. And so people would often tell the future. They would wrap a snake around their neck or they would put a snake on their arm, a python, and it would be an evidence of the power of Apollo, and they would tell the future. And so here is a young girl, probably with a snake around her neck, who is practically enslaved to men who are putting her out front to prophesy in order to make money off of her. And this girl with the snake around her neck is following Paul and Silas day after day, and she is saying to them, listen to these men. They're telling the good news of Apollo. They're telling the great news of Zeus. She says that they're telling the way of salvation of the, high, the most high God, which is a reference in Greek to Zeus. And, I, and I, I just, I love, I love this passage because it says, here's Paul, St. Paul, who sees this girl with a snake around her neck, following them around, saying, give glory to Zeus. They're telling you about Zeus. And I love, I just love that he's so human. Paul Having become indwelt by the Holy Spirit, turned, no, <laughs> it says, Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you to come out of her. <laughs> I mean, don't you love that? I love how Paul, you know, like Paul is like ticked off and says, come out of her. 
So, her, um, she finds herself healed of this demonic spirit. And her handlers or her owners are none too happy about this, are they? And so they rush in and they, they seize Paul and Silas and they take them before the civil magistrates and they say whatever they can heap upon them, they heap upon them. These guys are foreigners. They're Jews. They don't know the way of the Romans. They're teaching customs that are not um, commensurate with who we are as a people. And so the Jewish magistrates, you know, get these, get these the magistrates get Paul and Silas and the whole town by this time is riled up and they're all like trying to publicly shame Paul and Silas and they are beaten with rods, which is not as bad as a Roman scourge, but it's close. They didn't legislate the number of times you could be beaten with rods like they would a Roman scourge, which you could only be beaten, what, 40 minus 1. But you could be beaten with rods as much as the jailer or whoever the uh, perpetrator was, you know, could inflict. So they throw them in prison, and while they're in prison... The Roman prisons had no locks on the doors. They were just shut. And they kept prisoners safe by putting their hands or their feet in stocks. So here Paul and Silas are in the inner prison cell of a local jail. The Roman jails weren't meant to be stayed in very long. The Romans either released people once their family paid the debt or they executed them. They didn't have an overcrowding population in their prisons. Their prisons were not comfortable. So here Paul and Silas are in prison with their feet in stocks. Now, why do I tell you all that? I tell you all that because context is king, yes. But I also tell you that because here are men who are traveling together, who changed their plans for Lydia, stay in Philippi longer, who are walking to pray, and they get annoyed by this girl who follows them day after day, taunting them in the name of Zeus and Apollo with a snake around her neck, if that's not freaky. And then they're arrested, they're beaten with rods, and they're thrown into jail, and stocks are put upon their feet. Now, that is a recipe for gratitude, isn't it? And yet, look at the case study. Look what they do. Verse 25 says, About midnight, Paul and Silas were having a prayer and praise session in the prison. They're praising and they're singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening in. And an earthquake happens. And the jailer, for fear of his life, is about to kill himself. Because if prisoners escaped back then, that was the punishment. And Paul says to them, no, 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 we're here. We're all here. And if that's not enough, Paul then preaches the gospel to them. And he comes to faith. And then Paul and Silas have the audacity to go stay with the jailer in his house where his whole household saved. Listen, I don't know what that is. But I have to read my Bible to be reminded again of the profound brokenness that I experience as a fallen Christian. Because that would not be my experience. But Paul and Silas teach us some very important things about gratitude. They teach us, first of all, that gratitude has been hijacked by our circumstances. And if we are to understand what biblical gratitude is, then you first of all have to understand, number one, that gratitude is grounded in God's character, not your circumstances. Gratitude is grounded 
in God's character, not your circumstances. From Seneca to Shakespeare, gratitude was taught as a virtue. And it really wasn't until the post-enlightenment that we began to ground gratitude in a sense of emotion or feeling. And that is often based upon our present circumstances. But it wasn't always that way. And one standard bearer for the truth stood in the midst of the post-enlightenment world and tried to articulate the difference between um, what he calls hypocritical gratitude and true gratitude. Jonathan Edwards says it this way, that true gratitude or thankfulness to God for his kindness to us arises not from a foundation laid before arises from, excuse me, a foundation laid before of love to God for what he is in himself. Whereas a natural gratitude or a hypocritical gratitude has no such antecedent foundation. The gracious stirrings of a grateful affection to God for kindness received always are from a stock of love already in the heart, established in the first place on other grounds, namely God's own excellency. So in other words, biblical gratitude is not based upon the benefits that God gives to you, your circumstances. That's part of it. But true gratitude is delighting in the beauty and the majesty of the character of God himself. And if God's character is the foundation of our gratitude, then it changes the way we understand what Thanksgiving is as a Christian. It's not gratitude that becomes a kind of tip or nod to somebody for a, a service provided or a kind of platitude. Gratitude becomes something that really cultivates deep in our heart and grows. The first question of the Westminster Confession of Faith says, what, what is the chief end of man? What is your ultimate purpose? The chief end of man is to glorify God. What do we say? And enjoy Him forever. We don't say the chief end of man is to thank God for giving us a nice life. The chief end of man is to enjoy him, even and especially when life isn't nice. So first, gratitude is grounded in God's character, not our circumstances. Secondly, Paul and Silas show us that gratitude flows out of a certainty that our identity is in Christ. It flows out of a certainty that our identity is in Christ. The difference between Christianity and all the other religions is that we can know for certain our condition before God. Paul and Silas had a promise that one day, someday, they would glorify God whether by life or by death. They didn't have a certain promise of when they would be out, if their family would pay a debt, or if they would be released, or if they would face execution. Polycarp didn't know that either. When he stood before the Romans to be executed, what did he say? For, he said, for 86 years I have served my Lord. Do not think that in these final moments I'm going to deny him. A gratitude deeper than life circumstances. Friends, we stand in that tradition and I know that most of us are grateful for, you know, paying off our house or being able to make another mortgage payment or because we have kids that are this or that. Like, we, like this is the world we live in, right? But as a church, the session of our church wants to help push that deeper 
so that your sense of gratitude is not shaped by your circumstances, which change so often, whether your kids are in this position or that position, but it wells up in the heart because it's based upon the character of God and not your present experience. Um, there's two stories that I want to tell about two very close people that I dearly love, and um, one of them's here, so it's a bit moving for me, but um, when, when, uh, when my... Um, when my brother-in-law and his wife were pregnant with their, um, their first girl, um, the doctors told them that um, Eve, their, their daughter, might not live. That there were some pretty significant um, um, things going on in her little body. And, and they actually, shockingly, gave them like options. And they were like, what do you mean options? Of course we're going to have this child. And so they went through with the pregnancy, of course, and they're Christians. And they said, we're going to pray. And so they got all their friends when they lived in Denver to pray, and, and they asked our family to pray. And, and, and the day came when they were prepared for the worst. And they welcomed into the world a 100% perfectly healthy baby girl. It was amazing. And they, they today look back at that experience with a sense of gratitude, not only because Eve was healthy, but because they delighted in God's will for their life, however that ended up. And on the other side of my family, my brother and my sister-in-law also, they also were pregnant, and they were also told, hey, you're going to have a child who has pretty significant um, genetic malformations. And so they too said, well, of course we're going to have this child. And they prayed, and they asked our family to pray, and they asked their friends to pray. And, I, and so we prayed together. And when, when their baby boy, Jace, was born, he had pretty significant genetic malformations. And they held and cared for that baby every day in the hospital for six months. My brother didn't leave that hospital. And they got to live with their baby boy for a year and they held him in their arms when the Lord drew him to himself, and he passed away. Now, if you meet both of these couples, you'll know one thing about them. They're both incredibly grateful. They're both incredibly grateful for the circumstances that God has put into their life, but it's deeper than that. They're grateful for who God is and his character because even through very trying circumstances, they didn't doubt his goodness, and they prayed, and they yearned, and they cried out for hope. We are to move gratitude from the circumstances of our life deeper to be rooted in the character of God. Some of you students, like, we're on the precipice of amazing careers. We don't know what the Lord's going to do. And you might be like Heather McKinley, who find yourself ground down by life circumstances by the time you're 40. And now is the time to learn and cultivate what it means to be a grateful person that's not rooted in the circumstances that's rooted in God's tremendous love for you. And if you don't yet know Christ, then today is the day. He's opening his arms to you, and he shows you how much he's done for you by giving his life freely for you. As I was thinking about the sermon this week, I was thinking about the way that I get into a negative feedback loop when it comes to gratitude, and it goes a little bit like this. My circumstances almost always lead me into comparison. And comparison, wondering if this is what I thought my life would be like, 
if it's this or that compared to someone else, always tip me over into performance pressures. I gotta perform, I gotta get myself out of this. I gotta become better than the Joneses. Negative feedback loop. And that performance pressure sends me over the edge into a sense of restlessness where I'm discontent. And that discontentment breeds in my heart and it becomes a kind of bitterness. And that bitterness becomes despair and then I begin to back away from relationships one at a time. First my friends and then when it's really bad, my wife. So my circumstances lead to comparison. Comparison leads to performance pressures, which leads to a restlessness, which leads to a discontentment, and then a bitterness, and then despair, and isolation. And it feeds on itself. Have you seen this to be true in your life? But the biblical positive feedback loop is different. It says that we have a security that's fixed in the heavens. And that security provides for us an abiding and spiritual rest in God's finished work for us. And that abiding and that spiritual rest tips over the edge into a sense of gratitude, deep gratitude, not based upon your circumstances, but upon who God is. And that gratitude then moves you to praise and prayer, which is the the outcropping of what Paul and Silas experience here in Acts chapter 16. And that prayer leads to service, and that service leads you into relationships and into community. So certainty, into security, into a sense of abiding and spiritual rest, into gratitude and prayer and service and community. This this positive feedback loop, because can I tell you something? I know that you might not believe this, but I just want to tell you boldly that the grass is not green or with different circumstances, friends. My next-door neighbor has green grass. Like, well, not right now. It's Bermuda. But he's got really nice grass, the, the, the kind that's in your yard. Thank you. And um, some of you are going to get that in about 10 seconds. He's got, he's, got great, he's got a great yard. And his wife told him years ago, listen, if we have, once we pay off our house, I want you to put the money into our yard. <laughs> and so they have, like, the nicest yard on the block. And I, it's funny because... Because like when I first moved into our house, I was like, oh, we have a yard. It's awesome. And I was like hand-picking root, uh, uh, weeds out of my yard with like this little, I didn't know people like sprayed their yard. And so I spent years just being grateful that I had a yard. And I lived next door to a guy who's got like Boone-picking stadium grass on his yard. And so about three months ago, my father-in-law was in town, and he just made a comment about my yard. And I was thinking all about my yard. I replanted fescue. I have a kind of yard righteousness that I was trying to push down during my sabbatical. And, and my, my neighbor, or my father-in-law said to me, Blake, your yard looks really good. And I said, thank you. But you know what I thought in my mind? Shut up. It doesn't look good. It looks awful. Have you seen Bob's yard? It's amazing. And this kind of like negative feedback would begin to kick in in a really, really silly way. It, but it's not silly. Um, Bennett was sitting in our kitchen the other day on the edge of our kitchen sink on the bar where we often eat meals. And, and I looked at, he was sitting in the, and I said to Augie, I said, Augie, look at Bennett sitting on the edge of the bar. Bennett, get off of there. Look at Augie, look at Bennett. He's being silly. And Augie looks at me without missing a beat and he goes, Dad, he's not being silly. He's being dangerous. <laughs> and as silly as it is to think about somebody's yard, Comparison is extremely dangerous. It begins to pull gratitude out from being the virtue and the character it needs to be 
to being something based upon your circumstances. And we've got to push with all of our heart against that as a people. And I need you and you need me to help push against that. Paul was grateful for his unconditional election. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through the sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And this is the will of him who sent me, that all that he has given to me, of all he has given me, I will lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day, John chapter 6. Paul was grateful for the eternal security he had even while he was in prison. And as the psalmist says, forever, O Lord, is your word fixed in the heavens. And later on, of course, in Deuteronomy 31, it says, to be strong and courageous, do not fear or be in dread of them, for it is the Lord your God who goes before you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Or Hebrews chapter 13 Keep your lives free of the love of money and be content with what you have. For God says, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. For we have this sure and steadfast hope, friends, an anchor for the soul, that Jesus has pierced the veil and he has gone in behind the curtain in the inner place as our high priest and as our forerunner on our behalf. Amen? Gratitude is rooted in a certainty that we have in Christ. Lastly, gratitude is learned through example. People were listening to Paul and Silas, the prisoners, and the jailer. And parents, your children watch the way your, your gratitude develops in your home. They listen to what you're thankful for. And those of us who are single, our friends watch by example what we're thankful for. And we learn from older men and women. And as you get older, you ever notice this in your life? The older saints among us, they are grateful for things that are not very circumstantial. They're grateful for things that move deeper and deeper and deeper into their fundamental identity in Christ. Gratitude is not natural for us. Paul tells us that without the work of God, all men and women are by nature ungrateful, filled with ingratitude. It is the chief characteristic of the fall. Paul says it like this in Romans chapter 1. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made so that no men are, have an excuse. We're all Without excuse, God has made himself evident to us. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became foolish and their hearts were darkened. And they traded in the glory of the immortal God. And claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Gratitude is learned through example, and it must be continually cultivated in your hearts. This is why journaling is often helpful for us to practice gratitude. Writing down even the smallest of things to help us know what we're grateful for. And it will move. It will move from being a platitude to something that you're profoundly grateful for. You see this in children. Parents, when you teach your kids how to be grateful to their grandparents for their Christmas presents. You know, at first, when they're young, it's fun to watch. 
they'll open a present and they'll like totally forget about the grandparents who gave it. And you'll say, now go tell your grandparents, thank you. And they'll walk over there and they'll give the obligatory hug, which is precious in itself. They'll take that any day of the week. And they'll say, thank you. And our family, thank you, Dee Dee. My mom or Cece, Lauren's mom. Thank you, Pops or Poppy. But as they get older, it's amazing for us as parents to watch our children like spontaneously erupt into gratitude to their grandparents, not only during Christmas time, but sometimes just because. And that is what Paul, if that's true for children, that's what Paul is trying to help us grow in as Christians, to just delight in God for who he is, not just because of the gifts that he gives you, gifts that have a value based upon what you've placed upon them, irrespective of their true value. So... In the midst of this spiritual dynamic of gratitude, we are to recognize that gratitude is not based upon our circumstances, but is rooted in the character of God. We are to know that our gratitude is based upon a certainty. It is is based upon what Christ has done and fixed for us in the heavens, our identity in Christ. And we learn it together by example. And it needs to be cultivated TSA, when you go to an airline, they check you before you go into the terminal, don't they? And if TSA is trying to protect the world from hijackers, shouldn't you also set up some way to protect your heart from being hijacked by your circumstances? And the Lord gives us tools to do that. He gives us worship together. He gives us the Lord's table. He gives us fellowship and he gives prayer. Come. Keep coming, make worship a priority because this is the way we set up the TSA checkpoint, as it were, for the nature of our gratitude. Once the plane touched down in Rome, the hijacker, whose name was Raphael Mincelli, then took a car and he drove it to Naples. And on the way to Naples in the Italian countryside, they stopped the driver with Raphael Michelli in the back seat, and they arrested him. Longest hijacking in U.S. history. And in the same way, Christ has come to rescue us, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, he comes to grab the hijacking, and he comes to restore a sense of positive feedback loop that cultivates, practices gratitude, all in light of what Jesus Christ has done for you. We are not a people marked by gratitude because of our circumstances. Don't let your gratitude be hijacked by your circumstances. But allow it to be a virtue that we cultivate together based upon the character of God, rooted in the certainty of our identity in Christ, and learn together through example of which Jesus Christ, our Lord, becomes the perfect picture. Amen? Can we do this together? Oh, Lord, may it be so. Let's pray. Father, would you help us?